Listen to these birds chirping. This is my favorite place in Playa del Carmen. And now I'm back in the city, exposed to a different kind of noise that's a little less soothing than the birds chirping over there in the sanctuary. This experience of spending some time in Playa del Carmen is really just reaffirming my desire to live in a rural area. You know, I never thought of myself as a city person, but then for a while when I was living in Medellin and really enjoying it, I thought, wait, do I like cities? It, did I just need to find the right city? And for a while I thought that I liked the city of Medellin. And then I realized that I left every weekend, as I said earlier, I, I would work in the city, but then as soon as I had free time, I would leave the city and go to the rural areas. So, so no, I'm just not a city person. In this episode, I'm gonna be talking about my budgeting concerns. So first off, how much I think this is gonna cost it's just estimates at this point, but some speculation about how much money I might need. And then I'll also talk about where I'm at right now and some ideas that I have for coming up with the money. So at this moment, I've got about $34,000 in my checking account. So I'll just blurt that out right away because that's probably the most important uh, number that I could throw at you. Um, but I do also have some other money that I have in a retirement account and actually more. So I have maybe $70,000 in a retirement account. It kind of fluctuates because it's invested in stocks, but it's, it's a Roth IRA retirement account. And what that means is I can't, I can't take money out of that willy-nilly. There's tax penalties if I were to take too much out. So I think I could probably safely take out like $20,000 without suffering any penalties. Basically, it's set up so that you can't easily take money out, but there's some wiggle room. So, so I could take some money out of that, but um, not too much or I'd face those tax penalties. Not to mention, I don't want to just completely sabotage my retirement savings. So, so $20,000 is sort of an arbitrary number, but also based on a few things. So when you put that together, I've got just a little over $50,000 sort of uh, ready to go, more or less. That, that Roth IRA, it would take a couple of days to get the money out of the Roth IRA. So basically immediate access to that money as well. So, so yeah, call it $54,000. Um, so I, you know, I'll get more into the budget speculation in a moment and, uh, we can kind of see how, what I've got matches up with what I'll need. Uh, spoiler alert, it's less, <laughs> I have less than what I'll need, but, um, but yeah, I'll, I'll kind of talk you through, how I'm thinking about that situation and sort of ideas I have for, for making it work. My budget estimates actually came out really simple and not by accident, but more because I systematically eliminated anything that wasn't absolutely essential from the budget. So things like a greenhouse, a beekeeping setup, a chicken coop, uh, the sauna, all kinds of things like that that you might recall from my wish list and my plan for the five-acre farm, et cetera, in the last episode, I took a look at each of those items and said, is this absolutely essential? 
And if it wasn't, it didn't go into the budget. And that's not because I'm not going to do those things, but I don't have to do that right away. So what do I need right away? What will I need to pay for in my first year of this whole project? It's basically just the land. So at first I thought, okay, it's just the land and a place to live. So a cabin. And then I said, you know, well, the, maybe the cabin is just a tiny house. Maybe I build the guest house, a little 200 square foot guest house, and I live there. And then later I build a slightly bigger cabin to be my permanent residence. And then I said, well, maybe it's not a tiny house. Maybe it's a yurt. And I said, well, maybe it's not a yurt. Maybe it's just a really sturdy tent. And I just kept working my way down to cheaper and cheaper options until I, I basically said, okay, so I don't need to build a house right away. That's realistically, if I'm willing to camp on the land in a tent, which I am, then all I really need to do is buy the land. So that simplifies things quite a bit from a budgeting perspective. That's not to say that I would live full time in a tent on the land, but I'm okay with camping on the land in a tent a good portion of my time and then renting an apartment or something nearby until I can manage to build a more permanent structure to live in on the land. Unfortunately, even trying to speculate how much just the land is going to cost is pretty difficult because it depends on so many factors, as you could imagine, between does it have views? Uh, does it have water access? Is it near anything? <laughs> is it near a ski resort? Is it near a university? So location, views, water, um, tax status. That's actually a really interesting one because it can be to my advantage, the tax status of land. What I mean is if a property is in what's called current use tax designation, as in they're being taxed based on how the land is being used and not what its maximum market value theoretically is, then that actually causes any uh, residential developers who want to build condos or a bunch of subdevelop you know, subdevelop and build a bunch of crappy houses, they would pay a tax penalty. So that's that works to my advantage because it drives down the market value of the land because these developers would have to pay this tax penalty. So I think that brings me to my next point, which is I'm thinking about this land search from the perspective of how can I find a discount? And so I just gave one example. There's a few others. Another nice discount is when the road access is not that large. So there's minimums, minimum road access requirements for building multiple houses on a property. So, and this depends on the zoning district, how much you need. But let's say, for example, you need 200 feet of road frontage to build a house. So if I find a property that has exactly 200 feet of road frontage, but it's 50 acres, those 50 acres aren't as valuable as they would otherwise be because you can't build a bunch of houses on the land. You can only build the one because of the zoning requirement. So for me, that's what I look for because I do only want to build one house, and you know maybe my guest house and my campsites and all that. But um, I can kind of figure that out, I think, where I can still do some of those things even with the smaller road frontage. And then I'm not competing with these big-time developers who want to build 30 houses on the land or a big condo development or whatever. So they can't do that there because of the road frontage. So similar to the tax situation, it's another way that it discourages uh, commercial developers and, and brings down the price. 
the third and final discount I'll mention is the most significant. And similar to the other two, it's another deterrent that keeps the big-time developers away. And this one's the wetlands. The wetlands are the biggest negative in the eyes of the big-time developer because then they have to deal with all kinds of extra environmental regulations. And also, it's just really hard to build on wetlands. Even if there was no such thing as environmental regulations, you just wouldn't want to build houses on wetlands. It's not, you want to be on dry land. So that's when they say high and dry. You know, you think of that as a good place to build a house. You don't want to be low and wet. (laughs) That's not, nobody's looking for that. So, and myself included, I don't want to build a house in wetlands. Um, And, you know, you really shouldn't. But uh, I just want to build one house. So if I found a property that has some wetlands and some high and dry land, then I could build my house in the proper place, a little high and dry. And I don't mind having wetlands on the property. So if I could find a lot that was a mixture of wetlands and dry land, um, to me, that's great because I just want to be the caretaker of a really uh, healthy ecosystem with diverse and abundant life, which uh, wetlands fit into that really nicely. Uh, Whereas if you're trying to build 20 condos, wetlands don't help you at all. So again, it's just trying to find a way that um, land would be perceived as less desirable by people with deep pockets who are trying to make a lot of money building a lot of houses. And it's something that I don't personally find to be that much of a detriment. I, I think if anything, it's a plus to have wetlands. So that to me is probably the biggest opportunity for cost savings is to find land that has wetlands that still has enough dry land for me to build my own home, um, but will be less expensive because of that. You know what? I've got one more. So the last discount I want to mention is probably the most fun. It's not going to be a huge savings, but I think it's actually super cool, which is what if there's a public hiking trail that cuts through your property? And I actually found a property like this. And it's very inexpensive, and I think that's actually a combination of discounts three and four because there are wetlands on the property, so that's a big discount. But then I think it's actually further discounted because it has a public hiking trail that goes through the property. But I think that's so cool. So for me, again, that's a negative to most people who just want privacy and don't want random day hikers passing through their property. I think that's great. Like I would love to have a hiking trail go through my property. Um and, and what's nice about it too is this: in this particular example, the hiking trail goes through the front of the property, pretty close to the road. It's not like it cuts right through the middle, so you still have a lot of land that could be private and wouldn't, you know, be within eyeshot of random hikers. But you've got easy access to the hiking trail, and you know, if you're doing cool stuff there and you want to get some community building things happening. You've got foot traffic. You can kind of attract some people that way. Maybe people are hiking by and you can say like, hey, come try my honey or, um, you know, whatever. Just try to get people involved in whatever you're doing. So for me, again, I think that's the most fun one. I'm really excited about the idea of having a public hiking trail go through my property. Uh, I've only found this one specific property that has that. But I think in the future, if I saw property that had some kind of public trail going through it, I would jump on that because it's both a discount and, in my eyes, an advantage. At this point, I'm going to tell you a little more about that particular property I just mentioned because it is by far my favorite on paper. 
And I say on paper because I've looked at a lot of properties online and get all excited about it. And I do all this research that I can do online about you know the tax information and the hydrological cycle and the contour maps and like all these things that, that I do now when I find a property online that I like and I get all excited about it. And then I go and see it in real life and it's just not what I was expecting and not what I want. So uh, I try to manage my expectations a little bit now. And it's tough because I'm traveling still. So um, this happened to me a couple of times where I've been abroad traveling and I get all excited about this property and it takes me like a month until I can go see it in real life. It's a lot of time to build up expectations and then uh, those expectations so far have been rapidly dashed. So that's a risk for sure. But, you know, caution be damned. I'm going to get excited about it and and tell you guys, whoever's listening about it as well. So this particular property that I just mentioned, as I said, it has a hiking trail that goes through it. It's called the Northern Rail Trail. Um, Man, you couldn't say that five times fast. Northern Rail Trail, Northern Rail, <laughs> I can't even do it twice. Um, anyway, the, it goes almost from Boston to Vermont. Not quite, but it covers a huge span of New Hampshire. Um, it was, as the name suggests, originally a railroad, and it was converted into a hiking trail more recently. And you can actually bike on it, you can ride a horse on it, you can do uh, dog sledding on it, which I've never gotten into dog sledding, but who knows, I just might. Um, so anyway, enough said about the trail that, as I said, I, I find a, uh, a positive. The other thing I really like about this property is the price. It's $57,000. It's 14 acres and it has access to a river, quite a bit of frontage on a major river. I think it's called Smith river. Uh, don't quote me on that, but this property in theory should be a lot more expensive. 14 acres with river access, um, you know, that should be more expensive, but again, it has wetlands. Uh, I think close to the river, there's like a marshy area. And again, this is where I'm gonna have to go see in person and see just how much water we're dealing with. Like how wet is it? How much of the land is wetlands? So that's sort of the unknown right now, but um, it's not too good to be true that it costs what it does because again, it does have a public trail going through it, which a lot of people wouldn't like. It does have wetlands. So it's not unreasonable. Um, just to give you some idea of what the land's shaping up to cost in New Hampshire, uh, $50,000 does seem like the least I could possibly spend to get something resembling what I'm looking for, like five acres plus. Um, and that's like no mountain views, no water access, not near a ski resort. You know, that's, it's, um, you don't get everything on the wish list for $50,000, but it does seem like you can get a decent plot of land with a few acres for 50000 which is convenient since that's what I have, more or less. So the question is, could you get three times as much land if there's some wetlands on it and a public hiking trail going through it? Maybe. I don't know yet. So, so DVD, more on that later. Um, but I'm really excited about that property, and uh, that'll be the first thing I check out when I get back in the U.S., which will be in like four days now. So at the beginning of the episode, I was laughing about how I definitely don't have enough money and uh, I have some ideas for coming up with a little more money. And now I'm thinking, hey, it's theoretically possible that I could buy the land 
with just the money I have in savings and pay for the rest as I go. Um, but I think it's also still quite likely that I look at some of these less expensive lots and there's going to be something about it that I really don't like. I think it's reasonable to assume that um, the land is inexpensive for a reason. And like I said, maybe there it's inexpensive for reasons that don't bother me. Um, but there's still a pretty good chance that I'll need to pay more for the land realistically. So I'll go ahead and talk about some of the ideas I have for coming up with more money. Okay, so a few options that I wrote down in my planning notebook. And by the way, if anyone's following along with this and doing something similar in their own life, I highly recommend getting a dedicated notebook for all your planning notes. So I wrote down my budgeting options. The first one is buy a house with a large lot using a conventional mortgage. So the irony is that I could borrow probably three to $400,000 to buy a normal house. <laughs> so I think it'd be kind of hard for me to borrow 100000 or $150,000 to just buy land, but I could, buy, I could borrow a lot more if there was just a normal house on the land. And you know, some normal house lots are quite big. So I think I could still get 10 acres um, with a traditional house on it. But then, uh, so I wrote down the pros and cons. The, the, the pros are I could raise more money or borrow more money. It simplifies my shelter, food, and electricity concerns uh, dramatically So, because that stuff's pretty much already in place. And, but then as the cons, I would have debt, quite a bit of it. Uh, I'd have less options and less customization. So less options in the sense that there's not that many houses for sale that have 10-acre lots and less customization because the house is already built. So I don't get to make my own custom living space. I'm just kind of inheriting whatever someone else did with their own design decisions. So I don't like that option, <laughs> to be honest. That's, I, I wrote it down just for the sake of, you know, I, I, I wasn't positive that that was not a viable option for me until I wrote it down. And then I said, you know what, this, I don't like this. I don't like this one bit. So I'm ruling that out. Uh, the next thing I wrote down is buy the land cash and build the house paycheck to paycheck. Or, and not just the house, but the whole thing. So the whole homestead, I would just finance as I go with, with the income from my software engineer job. Uh, pros, no debt, lots of raw land options, extreme customization. So basically just the opposite of the previous option. The cons, limited budget and very slow. So yeah, it would take a few years really to get, to get going because I'm just always going to be limited by insufficient money. Um, but I really do like the idea of not having any debt. And also I like the idea of having all kinds of raw land options, you know, within my budget, which limits it a little bit. But um, when you're not beholden to a bank, you can get all kinds of weird lots that typically wouldn't be eligible for financing because of one thing or another. Banks are very particular, I've learned. Okay, uh, there is a third option, which is kind of like the compromise between the two extremes. So that would be owner finance land. Uh, because again, I just don't feel like dealing with banks to try to borrow money for land. But if I could get some kind of like handshake deal where somebody was selling land and I could just owe them money and pay it off over five years or something to the owner directly, that would be great. Unfortunately, I just don't think there's a lot of that happening. It does exist. It's totally a thing. But uh, so far from what I've seen, the lots that the owners are willing to do financing themselves are really undesirable. And that's why they're willing to do it because they just can't sell it any other way um, because it doesn't qualify for a conventional mortgage 
and the people with enough money to buy it just aren't all that interested. So yeah, that would be probably the best thing if I could do owner finance land, but I'm not holding my breath that that'll be an option. Uh, so the pros and cons there, I'd be able to afford a larger property than just buying it cash. And that would potentially leave me with cash left over in the bank to jumpstart some of my building ambitions. Uh, the negatives, still some debt and still quite slow. <laughs> so it's just like a watered down version of the pros and cons of the other two options, which were more extreme. All right, I think that is probably all for now. So next week I'll be driving around in New Hampshire looking at some of these properties that I've been looking at online. So wish me luck with that. And uh, I'll record some audio and give an update in a little bit on how that's going.